Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Welcome, Glenn. It's been a while. Our plan to uh, start the new year off with a bang has not gone off according to plan, but uh, we're going we're gonna to power through here the rest of the year. But before we get into yeah, things... We, we keep saying that. Yeah. But before we get into things, there's a few new patrons on patreon.com. So big thanks to Zach, Melissa, Megan, and Jeremy. Really appreciate you guys helping us out and contributing you know, a couple bucks to us through through Patreon. And everyone else, you can also go there if you are able to, patreon.com slash double the podcast to, uh, to help us out. All right, so Well, and I'm going to get started with our game that we've been doing this year is Where in the World, H, sorry, W-H-O-R-L-D, Where in the World. And Eric, if you're willing to play again, I have a couple of facts for you about a country. Yep, here we go. I'll give you, I'll give you a few facts, and then you see if you can guess. The facts will get more helpful as we move along. Okay. The first fact is it is the second largest country in Europe in terms of total area. Okay. The next fact about it is that there are 20 different languages spoken there, although there is a national language for that country. I can't say it because it'll tell you the name of the country, of course. Okay. The next fact is that it's actually home to one of our favorite holiday pastimes, which is dying Easter eggs. It's where the origin of dying Easter eggs using wax and dyes and things like that around Easter time. So they're, they're a country that celebrates Easter very strongly. Oh, boy. Yeah, all right, that's all right. Next one, I wouldn't be able to guess it on any of that yet either. The next one is they're the largest producer of sunflower seeds. Most of the sunflower seeds we get in the U.S. likely have come from there. Interesting. Okay. I've got All a right. pretty good guess, but nothing is like really locking me in. But keep going. Sure. It's bordered to the south by the Black Sea. And there is an island there called Zemini Island, which is known locally as Snake Island. It's the natural home of the pit viper, the golden lancet pit viper, an endangered species. Okay. Any more, or is that says all my clues? Yeah, no, I, one more, okay. one more, which will probably be a little bit easier. The national food dish there is a distinctive red soup made from beetroot and beef, known as, of course, borscht. All right. You said to the, to the south is the Black Sea, huh? Correct. All right, I'm going to have to go with Ukraine then. You are correct, sir. Well done. Okay. That's, I was not thinking, you know, larger European continent. I was thinking more European Union. So the second largest really kind of threw me off there. Me too. That would have been, I would not have thought of Ukraine in as a European country, but actually it is in Europe. Technically. Right. right. Well, that's good. That's very interesting facts. A couple of things. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to give a couple of shout outs to a few emails that I got. So one of them is from Miranda Hellman. She's an attorney working with the Kentucky Innocence Project, and I recently was helping out on a case with them. And I was just surprised because she didn't say anything until the whole time when everything was done. She's all like, oh, by the way, I'm a big fan of the show. I've been listening for a long time, and it was kind of cool actually seeing you because I'd only heard your voice before. It was great kind of hearing how you talked about the case because you and Eric had talked about exactly the same thing on your podcast multiple times. It was cool to see that you actually did that in this case, 
the very things you talk about on the podcast. I thought, oh, that's a nice little independent verification that uh, you and I, we do what we say, you know. Um, Practice what we, you preach. Right, right. We walk the walk and talk the talk. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, great. And uh, and she had also listened to the Alan McNamara podcast and really enjoyed those episodes. So that was kind of fun. I've gotten a lot of feedback from the McNamara episodes from various yeah. examiners. Been a very popular one. Uh, another email from David Tate, who's you probably know as a fingerprint examiner, and he used to work for the Onondaga County Crime Lab in Syracuse Forensic Science Center thing. He left there to become a full-time teaching instructor in Syracuse, and he had listened to the McNamara podcast as well, and actually created a little laboratory experiment for his kids to work through that sort of mimics elements of that actual case Very as well. Very cool. Which I thought was kind of interesting. And then finally, I also got an email from Michelle. I'm going to probably butcher her name. The way it reads to me is Michado, Michado. She's, a, she's an attorney in Texas. And she also had been listening. She found the podcast after talking to me on the case. And she had actually listened to the Staircase episodes and really mm. enjoyed those. And liked uh, getting the insider view on the staircase because obviously a very popular case in the media and news and drama on HBO and all that. But we took the forensic approach to it, including having Bart Epstein give an interview and talk about the forensic evidence that he viewed in the case. And it was I, she, I think, appreciated our forensic viewpoint as well as the fact that I know I gushed a little bit about the attorney in that case, David Rudolph, because I really admired his work. I think I had made a joke or something saying if I was ever guilty of murdering my wife and truly had done it, he is who I would definitely have hired. Oh, that's great. You know, I was, we've gotten in quite a few emails about the McNamara case and definitely enjoyed reading through all those and some very, you know, similar sentiments to what we expressed where it was difficult to imagine, you know, the real, the lack of documentation from the crime scene. One from a Canadian listener, you know, just found that just inconceivable. But, you know, I think it uh, is still all too real for some, you know, parts of, of the world or parts of the U.S. anyway, that don't have the, the consistency that you get across different provinces in Canada, you know, and then, you know, in the past over in the U.K., what it was like back then when this case went to, went forward, I think things have changed quite, you know, a bit in, in the U.K., but you still see pockets of that in different parts of the U.S. and likely in other parts of the world, too. Oh, for sure. And I don't know about you, but I've been reviewing a rash of cold cases here lately. And, of course, going back 10, 15, 20 years, I mean, the lack of documentation is not only frustrating, but appalling and sad and it makes the case difficult. But I'm just as guilty of it. I, I didn't document very well when I first started 20 years ago. Yep. So, I mean, I get it. It's just amazing. How important and, I guess, critical our focus on documentation has become in the last 20 years and why that's important to these cases. And, you know, it's one of the big things that in my new role that I'm focusing on is solving that problem, right, where the big push against documentation is the backlog. It's going to take add too much time and we don't have enough resources to, to document. So if, a, if tools are available to document without taking extra time, then that issue goes away and then you know, the level of documentation can increase without having that, that major impact on the, the case output from the unit. Yeah, good point. 
So what have you been up to, sir? Well, I mean, I've been all over. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere. See, I've been, I was at the Nebraska IEI conference. I think that kind of kicked off some of the traveling. But, uh, you know, also back to Anaheim. Demia is closing the, or sorry, not, it's closing our current office, moving to a new office down the road that's much smaller. So I'll be officially work from home, you know, basically 100% of the time, except when I'm out, you know, meeting with different examiners and agencies. Uh, but there won't, well, no I kidding. won't have well, a, an actual desk. I guess desk. that's good for you. Yeah. I won't have a desk anymore in Anaheim, which I've only been to, you know, maybe twice in the past six months anyway. But, uh, and then just last this past week, let's see, Morgantown, West Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia, and then out to Atlanta next week. So, and then San Diego for the California Division Conference here later this month and Austin, you know, coming up here for Texas. I'm a traveling man these days. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, that, that'll keep you busy and makes it difficult to record podcasts. <laughs> That's one of the big reasons. Yeah. And I'm assuming you've been all over here recently too, with different classes and testimony and stuff. Yes. Also traveling. I was in Brazil and then Canada and then Houston and, and testimony in DC a couple of times. And I've got one coming up in Florida and another one in DC and San Diego coming up and then I think there's like a couple, maybe a couple more trips in, in there somewhere. One in, I think one to Texas and then go to Europe for a week in June. And it's, yes, it's been a lot lately. But today I had a funny little story. I have not been very successful in my boating adventure, <laughs> adventures. I'm trying, well, I've been trying to learn how to, you know, just boat. I got a really cheap boat called a John boat. And for those that fish or know anything about boats, this will make sense to them. It's a 15, 15, maybe 16 foot John boat, which is like just like a duck hunting kind of fishing boat. And it's I got an aluminum hull to it and it's leaky. The very first time I put it in the water, it turned out there wasn't a drain plug in the boat. So it immediately began to sink instantly when I got it in the water, which figured out how to take care of that. And that was a whole mess. And the biggest thing was it's difficult to move around on the lake because all I really have are oars and they don't work really well on it. And it's much more difficult to oar and row a boat than you might expect on a lake. You get tired very quickly. And the width of it, it's weird because it's hard to get the paddles in the water. And it, anyway, point is, I finally bought a, an actual real motor for it. I only got like a four horsepower motor, which I thought gasoline powered motor, which would then now be able to get me around my lake relatively easy. So I was very excited to get in the water today because next weekend is our fishing, fishing opener. So I wanted to get the boat in the water today. So I got down to the landing, got it in the water. Everything kind of worked out like, all right, this is working. Although there was a sheriff down there who was like, you know, your registration's expired on that, which I had not noticed. And he didn't give me a ticket, but he was like, you better get that fixed. All right, fine. But he was nice enough to let me just go on by because I live you know, nearby. So, and anyway, got it in the water and <laughs> the wind started sort of blowing me out to the middle of the water. And now I'm trying to get the motor going and I'm pulling on the motor. Nothing's happening. And I had actually, when I bought the motor, they ran me through, they had put it in the tank, they showed me how to start it, like everything worked fine, like, yeah, all right, great, got it. There's like five different things you have to make sure are open and like every, all the, there's a little run-through procedure, and, but there's five different things you have to make sure that this is open and the choke is open and the throttle's in this position and this valve is open and did all that. It was all there. And I cannot get the thing started. And I'm just being blown in now out to like <laughs> out to in the middle of the lake. And I'm not 
going anywhere. It's not starting. And my arm's getting tired, and I think I've probably flooded it. So I'm waiting and waiting, trying to get it going again. Nothing's happening. I call Cabela's where I bought the motor. Again, people at Fish will recognize that store. And it was like, come on, guys. I mean, what, what's going on here? And so I did FaceTime with them, and they're like, yeah, we don't know. It should be starting. That doesn't sound good. It sounds like there's something mechanical wrong with it. And we ran through everything again, and nothing happened. So I'm just sitting out there dead in the water, not going anywhere, baking in the sun. And it was very frustrating. So got the oars out and just started working it. I had a little, I have a little trolling motor on it. Luckily, I had thought to bring it just in case and got that hooked up. But it only goes about one mile an hour, maybe two miles an hour. And if there's a strong breeze, you'll just sit there working against the wind. So that trying to row by myself and do the little trolling motor, I finally was able to get past the wind and get home. But it took me two hours in blistered hands, and I cannot seem to have a good simple boating experience and luckily the cabela's is going to come out and either fix it or take it back and replace it but something mechanical is wrong with it well, so uh, it, i did not die at sea today not today and it, it didn't sink you know i guess that's an improvement yeah. over last time i did not sink that's true it started leaking but i mean but i knew that there's little leaks at the rivets but it's like a gallon maybe every 30 minutes that leaks in maybe a gallon an hour or something like that yeah probably about a gallon an hour so I'm fine as long as I'm not out there for 24 hours. <laughs> wow, Glenn. Which, well, I, I'm now going to look forward to additional boating stories here, especially as the season gets underway. Because like you're saying, so far, you know, it has not been going well. I have not had, I've, I think three or four times I've been in the boat on the lake and it has not worked out well yet. Well, I, my days was much less interesting. I just, I decided I wanted to get, you know, a mortar and pestle. And, uh, but a more traditional Mexican mocajete and we look around for one and, and different markets and finally went to the, uh, the weekend swap meet down the road. I realized I haven't been to a swap meet since I was a kid, but found it and now I got to season it and get it ready for use, but I'm all set for grinding spices or making guacamole or whatever. So. No, nice. A big stone one, right? One of those big yeah, stone. Yeah, like a volcanic kind, basalt yeah. kind of kind of style right, ones. Right. And it's got a little face of a pig on the front. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, let's move into the the main topic for the day. Yeah. If our listeners got bored with the first 18 minutes, hopefully they just fast forward to this point. And now we're going to talk about the actual paper today. Today's paper comes from Tom Busey, Brandy Emmerich, and John Vander Kolk. This is another one of the papers from... Tom Busey, who's a cognitive behavioral psychologist. He is out of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Tom has done a number of papers and has a number of contributions to the field. Tom's been doing research in our field for almost 20 years, if you will. Yeah. And this is another paper and from their group called Tracking the Growth of Visual Evidence in Fingerprint Comparison Tasks. And it was published in Attention, Perception, and Psychophysics in 2023. If you want more information than that, you can reach out to us, and we're happy to try to get you a copy. Not a typical publication that fingerprint examiners are going to have access to. This is for the psychological, psychological and neurological type journals, yeah. neurocognitive science journals. And the general concept of the paper here was they were testing fingerprint examiners 
under different conditions by giving them increasing bits of information to look at their decision making. How the information that they provided over time, as they added more and more information in a comparison-like process, how that had measurable effects on the examiner's performance and decision making. And that's the just a quick summary of it. Well, actually, I'm I'm sort of curious before we get into it because it's a very technical paper. Yes, lots of statistics, lots of signal detection theory, which I would encourage listeners if they want to know more about that. There's a a simpler introductory article in JFI on signal detection theory that Busey wrote some years ago. If people want to start there and learn more about signal detection theory, but it's very complicated. So I think we're going to try to distill it down to digestible chunks for examiners and sort of takeaway moments rather than get into what I imagine the statistics and the weeds of signal detection theory. But if you were to try to summarize a couple of takeaways that you have from this paper, what were some of the takeaways and we can we can go back and fill in the, the mortar between the bricks? So, I mean, overall, really interesting study. And but before I can kind of get into some of my takeaways, I'm going to have to explain a little bit about what they did. So they had 16 examiners look at 72 latents each, half and half split between latents that will, would eventually be presented as mated, what they're compared to versus non-mated, and pick out eight features within the latent print that the examiners felt were of the highest usefulness or highest diagnosticity, starting with the most useful for comparisons. They didn't specify ID or exclusion, so just the feature that would be most useful in a comparison down to the eighth most useful. Try to kind of have the examiners pick those out in order. Right. And diagnosticity is this term in literature that refers to, as you said, the usefulness of the feature in the examination process. So that might mean, for example, for us, like cores and deltas are very diagnostic for both IDs, potentially, and exclusions. But for searching functions, they're very helpful. Basically, target groups or distinctive features or what we might think of as diagnostic. Yep. You can roughly think of it as like value for the comparison. So then a period of time, a week or a month later, those same examiners were then presented with a side-by-side comparison where they saw the known print fully displayed on the right. And on the left, the latent print was initially just displayed with a bunch of just background noise and then only a tiny little square of the first displayed. And then they would ask, were asked to make a conclusion. And the conclusion scale was easy exclusion, moderate exclusion, difficult exclusion, tending towards exclusion, tending towards ID, difficult ID, moderate ID, easy ID. And then they were given shown another little square on the latent print and asked to make the conclusion again, then a third and a fourth, all the way up until they're seeing all eight. Yeah. And then during the comparison, the, the order of which squares were displayed were varied. So some tests that were shown from the best to the worst for that diagnosticity in the same order that the, the examiners picked them. Sometimes the opposite way, from the least to the most diagnostic. And then in some t- situations, randomly. And the examiners didn't know what the order was for each of these tests, for each of these displays. They were just asked to make a conclusion after each one. Yeah, and in fact, the study design reminded me of the game Concentration, the I remember with Alex Trebek when he would do it, but many years mm. they've had different hosts. So there's right there's a puzzle behind the screen, the these 
numbers and then contestants pick certain boxes and they begin to reveal more and more of the puzzle. And right. certain squares are going to be helpful to solve the puzzle and certain squares are not. You might just get like a blank image or a fraction of a little cartoon behind it. And then some of the ones have a lot of information that's critical to solving the puzzle. And by the time you see all of the squares open up, you can see pretty much the whole image and then you have a better chance of solving the puzzle. Reminded me kind of that sort of approach to it. But it's still important to know that you're now looking at, by the time you get to the all eight being shown, that's going to be the same regardless of the order because all eight are going to be the same eventually getting there either way because it's just those eight that were selected. It's just the order in which you got to all eight being displayed. And there's these little bubbles of feature of features, right? So you can't really necessarily connect, you know, feature to feature because it's these little bu bubble islands throughout the print. Some might be adjacent so you can, you know, connect those two, but uh, usually there are these little bubbles of features spread across the print where you couldn't count ridges in between them. What they, what the kind of some of the takeaways from here is overall the, the curves of how many regions were displayed and you know, what the actual end, final decision ended up being uh, was a fairly linear increase towards that final conclusion. There were some you know, variations, like when you were shown the features best to worst, it tended to have the decision really lock in early and then kind of start to flatten out over time, you know, where you then weren't adjusting it by the time you got to the end. For, and that's the same for either ID or for exclusion. And then if you were shown from the opposite way, worst to best, it took a while before you locked in and then you finally got there. And then the random order was somewhere in between. So yeah, that's kind of one of the, the takeaways from here is it's in general, you know, better to start with the, the good points and then you'll get your answer faster. Yeah, uh, that, that's a pretty salient takeaway is if you use all the information in a fingerprint, you'll eventually get to the same position no matter what, where you started or what you did. Point being is that there are certain parts of the fingerprint, I think, that, as the study showed, kind of get you farther faster right out of the gate. And it might take longer if you start with either less diagnostic or less clear portions of the fingerprint, but eventually using all the information, you'll eventually get there. Although there was one little nuance that I yeah. wanted to discuss that where there was a little bit of a difference, but for the most part, you're, uh, that was an interesting takeaway is that this linear process didn't really have what they noticed was there were no aha moments. Like when they showed this part, bam, like the signal goes up and jumps up significantly. They call it an S or a step curve where there's this exponential shoot up of aha. Now that you've shown this to me, now I know for sure this is an ID or this is for sure an exclusion. It was, okay, I'm a little more confident in ID. Next, next square, I'm a little more confident in ID. Next square, and neutral. Next square, oh, nope, I'm more confident in ID. And you kind of just slowly work your way up towards an ID without this moment of, bam, there it is. And one of the things that they point out is that in other fields, there tends to be a, a biasing factor where if you start looking at the best feature, then you are more likely at the end of the eight to get to whatever conclusion that they're testing. And this is a more generic psychology kind of experiment. But if you yeah, start like with an anchoring bias, right. Or if you start with the worst, then you would tend to head in whatever direction that's pointing to you. And that 
for the mated tests, there was a little bit of that, where if you started with the worst feature of the eight that you, the, you know, the examiner that's under test here had selected, then you were less likely to get to that final, to that highest level of ID versus if you had started with the best point, you were more likely to have a stronger ID at the end. Even though by the time you got to the end, you're seeing the same eight points regardless. Right. Call it like a skeptical bias, if you will, that, I mean, the way I translate it is, boy, if you started with really not very diagnostic features and crappier features, let's say, that there's a higher chance you might end up with an inconclusive if it's a real borderline print as opposed to an identification of someone started with the most diagnostic parts. And that's that's kind of the way I translate. I know the authors didn't ever say things like that, but I tried to translate it to realistic or world events that I've observed. And I, I've got some cases, you, maybe you have similar ones, where you run through with students, and when you try to find out where students started in the fingerprint, I've noticed that sometimes if they start in the upper portion, they're a little more likely to end up on this conclusion, but if they start in the lower portion with these other features, they might be more likely to end up in this other decision mode. I only have a few cases that have demonstrated that, but I thought I saw some of that same thing happening here in these data where there was just this little bit of difference where they refer to it as the sensitivity being lower, meaning you're less likely to ultimately report a strong association, i.e. an identification, had that happened. So in the intro, they describe the expectation, at least when they began this experiment, that the decision line for an ID Maybe kind of a more gradual stepwise thing, but for an exclusion, it may be a very quick, you know, you get to this aha moment where they use the term, the one discrepancy rule, right? When, once you do find that one discrepancy, then you're all the way to an exclusion. Right. So I guess that relates back to the intro where I, the intro to me very stood out as very 2003-ish talking about the, you know, this emphasis on identification over exclusion. Uh, the three conclusion scale, one discrepancy rule. It seemed very 20 years ago. I didn't have that same reaction, no? by the way, but it's interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I just thought they were referring to sort of what might be happening in a lot of agencies out there right now, which is ID, exclusion, inconclusive. And there are still agencies that kind of follow a one discrepancy-like viewpoint. All the references that they put in regarding you know, these different practices and all the, where it's all been studied and continued multiple references to SWIGFAST, but nothing to OSAC. Hmm. Again, all okay. 10, 20 years ago. You know, also in, when they brings up the one discrepancy, one ex unexplainable discrepancy, no reference, right? No, hmm. no reference hmm. of what agency might be doing this, you know, what policy they would be following if they did. No, okay. That, that, that's a fair observation, which... SWIGFAST rejected it in 2013 and had a very clear appendix dealing with we're abandoning this one discrepancy principle. So, okay, I see your point. So that's, on, that's on kind of where that's coming from. But so as, as opposed to that expectation, what they found in here was that the rate of growth, you know, looking at, well, kind of the absolute value of this growth because either towards an ID, which was the, the way they graphed it, you know, expressed as a positive slope versus towards exclusion as a negative slope. If you look at the, the absolute value of the two, they're quite similar when looking at the trend towards an ID for the mated samples and towards an exclusion for the non-mated samples. And they, they found that to be surprising and contrary to their ex expectation. Right. Yes. There, right. There wasn't a, 
aha, you just showed me this difference. And so now I'm sure it's an exclusion and bam, I'm going from tens to exclusion and jumping all the way to it's an exclusion. All right. So Glenn, any other takeaways from this experiment one set of data? Yeah, well, one one thing that sort of stood out a little bit, but you have to understand some some of the methods here. There's two things that they did that were interesting. The first is, of course, this is more a forced choice thing. In fact, yeah. the design to this reminds me very much of the Tangan study out of Australia, where you're, you've got the sliding scale, where you never really say it's an idea. Uh, like this is just ident that mirrors our idents. They have this level of complexity. So what would happen is most examiners kind of start right out in the middle and they would get a box and then they might slide a little bit towards an ID tending towards ID or a little bit the other way tending towards exclusion. They never made distinct decisions right out of the gate. And then they got a little more information and then that bar would either stay there or start to slide again usually in incremental pieces as they got more and more information. There were fewer of the going towards the identifications, which was interesting. There were, they were more likely in the end to not ever erroneously identify something. They were more likely to erroneously exclude something. So they tended to, if anything, when starting, they tended to usually focus on the tending right in the middle of the graph and never go to extremes. And then, if anything, it seemed if they had a choice, if they had to make a choice, let's go towards the exclusion side, because if I'm getting it wrong, it'll be more of an erroneous exclusion as opposed to an erroneous ID. And the authors sort of noted that might have something to do with our cultural attitudes towards erroneous identifications versus erroneous exclusions. If you have to choose one or the other, I probably would have done the same thing. Just let's start tending to exclude until I get more information. I thought that was interesting. That seemed very psychological aspect of the fingerprint examiner. Yeah. So, so I mean, just to put it mathematically, the way they have the y-axis here work is zero is the line in between leaning towards exclusion and leaning towards, or sorry, tending towards exclusion or tending towards ident. So then anything negative is one of the exclusion responses and anything positive is one of the ident responses. So if you look you at you have to pick one. You got to pick one side of the other. There. Exactly. So what has it happening then is the average for you know just looking at one region in a mated sample, the average was somewhere around negative point five, and then as you added on more and more, you went into positive territory and up towards towards the top around I don't know point seven five or so, and then for the non-mated samples, you started around negative one, and then went down to about negative two and a half. So, you know, when you have almost no information, our tendency as examiners was to say, let's tend towards exclusion because I don't really have enough information to say either way. And if I have to pick between one side or the other of the, I don't know, I'll lean towards the exclusion side. And you yeah. pointed that out in the paper, and I think they're exactly right on that. Yeah. It's a cultural bias that we have in handling these errors. Yep. All right. So that was all experiment one. Ex experiment two was very similar. You again had a new set of study participants come in, pick out eight diagnostic features within the print, but, but they didn't ask for that ordering this time of, you know, most diagnostic to least. The examiners may have done that. Again, they didn't know about the first test, so they didn't know to pick them in any order. They just picked out eight. And then the authors of the study then applied a, an image quality mask to the image to 
give it this kind of latent print look where they could control the clarity of each of the features that were selected to have it very be very clear that it's exactly what you know the examiner saw when they look at the uh, unmessed with image or really bad and then they had you know a week or a month later had them all go through and do a comparison side by side but again exposing just these little squares of features either showing them best clearest feature to least clear feature or the opposite worst to best or a random order and this time around i think one of the things that really surprised me was really that by the time you got to all eight it didn't matter what order they were displayed in by the time you got to see all eight whether you saw the best clearest feature first the worst feature first or in a random order you got to the basically the same place at the end which was what we had pointed out earlier could possibly if it's right on the edge might might have some influence towards an examiner to just call it in the end inconclusive almost an id as opposed to tripping over that line calling it an id that's my translation of it is that there is a possibility for mated pairs for that reduced sensitivity but for the most part didn't have that much of an impact on average yeah, the only real difference is in just how fast you got there, right? If you were given the clearest things first, you know, the best to worst order, then you just got to that whatever final conclusion you were going to make sooner versus if you went worst to best, it just took you longer to finally get there and you got there when you got to all eight. Right. Yeah. And you know, overall, I don't think it's super, any of this is really super surprising, which, you know, it's actually my favorite kind of study way. <laughs> and it's, like, this is kind of what I was expecting with the exception of the, you know, how similar the exclusion and identification slopes were uh, on average. But I expected that to be different. I expected there to be a little more sharp increase, maybe for the exclusion. I kind of expected what the authors were expecting a little bit. Well, we'll get there in a second. I have some thoughts on that. But, uh, you know, in relation to the Seeing the best things first gets you to your conclusion faster. That I, I think is you know, very much aligns with the expectations of you know, most examiners. Yeah, I, th I think one thing that stood out to me is they do a nice little comparison of the results from experiment one, right? Which the order of diagnosticity and experiment two, the clarity function. And it seemed that clarity had a stronger impact that overall for better or for worse, right? When they were really poor clarity, it really gave examiners nowhere to go. But as you increase the clarity pretty quickly, the slope goes up really fast, very quickly. So we really do focus on clarity and need that clarity. Whereas with the diagnosticity, even if they were low diagnosticity, you started at one point and you began to creep up and the slopes of the, those curves were just flatter. You... Each level of diagnosticity added a little bit more, but it wasn't like the jump and the rate of increase with the clarity. In other words, clarity probably matters of the two more than diagnosticity. And so putting that in terms for fingerprint examiners and comparisons, better have lots of clear features than lots of rare distinctive features. Well, I'm not sure we can draw completely draw that conclusion here from just this paper. I'd caution against making that conclusion. And that's because the variation between those eight features is quite different between the experiment one and experiment two. So in experiment two with the clarity, you went from crystal clear, you can see it 
as I mean, they started with a essentially an inked print and then just made it look like a latent. So the top clear features were like exactly as they appear. And then the number mm -hmm. eight one is just unreadable. It's, it's, you can barely see anything that's going on in that square. So you have that full gamut of absolute best to absolute worst. On the diagnosticity tests, they were, the users or the participants were asked to select the eight most diagnostic features. So they selected them in order one through eight, but number eight wasn't the worst in the print. Mm. It was just the worst of the eight selected. So it was really just the eighth best feature for diagnosticity. I see your point. So, we don't know that they're necessarily low diagnosticity versus high. They're just lowest in the selection. Right. Of so their choices on a scale of zero to 100, you know, the image clarity ran that gamut of zero to 100. But for gotcha. the diagnosticity, it could have been just 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97. Yeah, gotcha. And 98. Uh, okay. Fair point. Fair point. Well, well said. I take your point. That's a really good point. And they do mention that here in this paper, so I want to make sure that to give them credit for pointing out that potential limitation. I mean, I'm not going to argue whether or not it's more important to have clear features or more you know, diagnostic, or if they conflate to a point where maybe even the, you, the participants, when selecting the most diagnostic feature, clarity kind of mm. played a role in that as well when they chose that. Sure. Um, that, I think that still just needs to be pulled out maybe in follow-up studies. Yeah. Okay. That's well spotted. So I want to get into a weakness that I saw here in this paper that I don't think they, they described. And that's just, it kind of goes into the setup of how the differences, you know, between what they were doing here in the study and how comparisons actually happen. And granted, it's a study, it's research. You have to make certain assumptions and there's certain limitations that are going to go into that where you're not going to be able to replicate real life comparisons to some degree. But still, and it's that when you're going through and doing a comparison, I don't think you really follow any of these three orders of looking at features, right? So they looked at most diagnostic to least, least to most, or random set. And I think it's more of a, well, you start with a set of features, you know, a couple of them all together as your target group that are hopefully the most diagnostic, but also easy to memorize and clear and near a core delta. And then you build out from there. And you, you, as you build out, you build out to features that are can hopefully very diagnostic, but also just nearby and that you've marked mm. in your, in your latent here, you could be bouncing all over the place from the study as opposed to, you know, kind of where, which, which features you picked out, but you're not actually comparing that way when you compare. Uh, I see your point. You're, I, if I'm hearing you right, is instead of doing these little random boxes that had no connectivity, which they did discuss that part yeah. of the lack of connectivity, what if they just increased the boxes in increasing area from some central focal points who are expanding out like a radius? And, and I get it, right? It's part of the reason for this study was to look at, okay, are examiners looking at each of these features individually, right? And then you kind of just add them all up as, you know, it's an additive process of you now I have two and three and four and five. Or are you looking at things, you know, holistically, like the entire fingerprint at once, like you would look at a face. Multiplicative almost. And they're describing it in the intro, the difference between fingerprint examination and facial recognition and not face examination as a forensic discipline, but just 
the natural recognizing of faces that we do as humans, that is a, you look at everything all together and things, you look at how things all relate to each other. And what they're trying to do here was separate the features out into little boxes. So that's kind of one thing that I, that it's not entirely, you know, following along with how we do comparison. So again, something, some things, interesting things to learn from this, but I think that's a weakness. But even bigger than that is that in this study, examiners always knew that they had eight chances to make a conclusion. They are asked after number one and number two and number three, and they grew from one to eight. In real life comparison, you don't know that number eight is going to be kind of your last chance, or you have, even have this kind of final wrap up where you then look for anything you may have missed. You're looking for features that try to disprove your current hypothesis for, you know, the conclusion that you're leaning towards. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if you know that there's eight, every, and you go in order one through eight as the, as eight subsequent comparisons, essentially, then I think that examiners are just going to naturally tend to slowly build towards their conclusion where with subtle adjustments and, you know, cause why bother having that aha moment when you know, you're going to have four more chances to make a conclusion. So I'm not quite sure how to account for that. Like if they did a follow-up where you didn't know if you're going to stop at five or two or eight or whatever, if, you know, maybe they'd have different results here. But I think that going in, knowing that you have eight chances to, to make a conclusion here is going to influence the slope of these graphs and may be the reason why you had sim such similar slopes, unexpectedly similar slopes between the ID and the exclusion. Interesting. Yeah, I, again, I go back to the concentration game because, yes. again, I think about how no one ever tries to solve the puzzle in the first couple, right? Everyone knows, or like with Wheel of Fortune, same kind of thing. You just, you don't take those chances in the beginning, so you start off real slow, but you know that there's a finite bound that eventually you're going to get shown all this information. And so there's a point where you can start to feel more comfortable making that if you know what that bounding is. You kind of know, you, you, you sort of gravitate to when it's about right to take that chance. Yeah, I think even with like Wheel of Fortune as a, you know, as an example, you still have people taking these wild swings really early on when they're really confident and, and the, just the number of letters in each word plays out because you, you know that you may not get another chance for it to come back around if someone gets on a roll. Yeah. Um, versus if you were just doing Wheel of Fortune by yourself and the only risk was the potential bankruptcy then I think you would tend to wait longer to then be really super sure. It kind of, it's all that what's the risk versus reward side of things. And yeah. when yeah. they're, you know, for here, there is no risk for reaching a conclusion earlier. So maybe just why as well wait till the end before you, or slowly ramp up to the conclusion that you're heading towards. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder, I mean, again, I'm thinking about examiner psychology. For example, if it was random at some point, you know, after four boxes, the trial might end, right? So maybe every now and then you don't get to see a fifth or a sixth. Right. Would that have changed anything? Or I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know because, again, examiners are so conservative generally in trying to apply their decision-making. Maybe, maybe they don't care. Maybe they go, right. well, you know, I didn't get there. Oh, well. I don't know. I, it's interesting to, to think about, like, what I would have done in that position. Or totally randomize what you're comparing, right? So you say you see sample 42, you see all eight. And then sample, the next thing you work on is sample 17, where you see two. 
and then sample mm. 70 where you see six and then so it's all just mixed up and then you're having to make each basically now each decision is completely independent mm. where you don't really remember what you had said in two versus three versus four versus five you have to make a call completely based on what you see right now before you yeah although that is one of the things that they wanted to test was how much history had an impact on yep. later decisions i mean that literally was one of the things that they were testing the the hysterica or hysteria hysteria uh, historical no there's a i'm sorry there's a statistical term for it His, hysteresis ah that's what that word meant <laughs> didn't look at it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's the impact of the previous history on the, you know, the later. Sure. Does history have an impact? I, I really think it does. I really do think it does. And maybe the basis for that similarity and slope between ID and exclusion. They suggested their data says that there's weak support for hysteris, hysteri, hysteresis. It's, it, is, it's a, it is a funny word because, of course, I want to say hysteria. Glenn, any other final thoughts on this paper? Well, I love this kind of research, yeah. and I love that Tom Busey does this sort of research, and I look forward that we'll be talking to Tom in a couple of weeks here in San Diego. And then we want to sit down with him and talk about another paper that their group has come out with. They just quietly have been releasing lots of really interesting studies over the last 20 years that look at really interesting effects of how the examiner and sometimes the layperson in comparison process this information and I really like these studies. I think it gets more at it. To me, it's more important and tells me more about the comparison process than some of the other cognitive psychology of like, well, examiners were influenced by knowing whether what the case type and just some of that mm. bias stuff that yeah. I find these studies more interesting because, again, I think it speaks more to our process. And if there are some things that we can really change about the process, I'm, that's what I looked at for this was. Does it really matter where the examiner starts in the fingerprint? You know, is there, and they suggested that not necessarily, as long as they ultimately have access to all the information, that they'll probably get to the same spot. Although there is that one, at least, you know, in the one example where there was a little lower sensitivity towards the identification. Yeah. And I think, though, the overall trend, though, of ending up in the same spot is pretty clear. And, you know, they did focus in really much on the early side of the examination, right? We're only showing eight little unconnected bubbles. But even within that very early stage of the comparison, starting to arrive at the same spot, I think is suggestive of, you know, normal comparison where you have much more information and all connected, that that is the trend where regardless of where you start, most of the time you're going to end up in the, in the same spot. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was a fun little paper and glad we were able to get a chance to take a look at it. And again, looking forward to talk to Tom and maybe Tom can give us a little more insight too. Maybe he'll get a chance to hear this before, before we get to San Diego and he can yell at us for not correctly summarizing his paper. Or, or pronouncing hysteresis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Glenn, any, any conferences or uh, classes coming up you want to talk about? Well, for me, the next class that I'm teaching that's available to sign up for the public is actually in Minneapolis. I'll be teaching on home turf, and that is July 17th through the 20th of this year, 2023, and that's the exclusion and sufficiency class. 
and that will be being hosted by Hennepin County, which is the county in which Minneapolis is in. So it's going to be in Minneapolis, and that you can sign up for at ronsmithandassociates.com. And then I believe the we'll be at the IAI together, and that'll be pretty cool. Yep. And I believe the one the I have an ACE V class in the fall. That's October. It looks like that's going to be in Michigan. That's going to be October 16th through the 20th. So my other old stomping ground will be in the Detroit area and the Minneapolis area. It's going to be a fun year. And then a new one that's being put up on Ron Smith and Associates is the Practical Answers for Challenging Questions in the Courtroom class I teach with Brendan Max, the attorney, and Carrie Hall. That's going to be in the Boston area, November 6th through the 8th in 2023. So... Those are my courses this year. Hope, hope to see you guys in some of those courses. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. And I'm going to be also conferences so far for this year, California, Texas, the IAI, the DC area. So if you're going to be in DC, just a quick rundown here of what I'm signed up for. You can see the, the lecture schedule has been released already. So towards the end of the week, I'll be doing a, a lecture on using a likelihood ratio model in APHIS. Uh, measure the weight of latent print evidence using an AFIS system. So I'm really looking That's forward big to news, man. Yeah, really looking forward to talking about that. A lecture talking about some of the accuracy results. You know what we talked about here in our last episode with the NIST ELFT results, and then also a paper from the FBI, and really just how examiners can take those results in that paper and use that information to make decisions about, you know, their strategy in launching searches against APHIS. And then finally, a lecture on putting the A in APHIS, some options that are becoming available to automate more steps in the latent print portion of, of an APHIS system. Cool. Very cool. And this statistical model, I probably can't say too much about it right now, but this is a, this is not some of the ones that are out there. This is something that you guys have developed, right? A likelihood ratio model. Correct. So this was this is in collaboration with with Cedric Newman and um, the Cedric Newman. The, yeah, the Cedric Newman, who I think is now more of a bigger uh, Phoenix Suns fan than I am. But anyway, you know, we're working with him on some and based on some of the research that he and one of his students had published here recently, and very similar in in many ways to existing models that are already out there from like Lasan. But small also some differences in taking some you know, next steps from from where that work is at. So very looking forward to talking to you know the community at large about what is what will soon be available for agencies to take a look at to potentially incorporate into their APHIS systems. Pretty cool, man. Very cool. Exciting Absolutely. Stuff. So yeah, no, gotta have a few conversations with Cedric to make sure that as I put the lecture together that I'm not. Totally screwing up the math, but he's been help, very helpful in, in, in helping to double check everything for me. So looking forward to seeing everybody here at conferences this summer. All right. Well, then, all right. Well, then let's wrap up the episode. If you have any questions for us, you can send us emails, Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. Go to our website, DoubleLoopPodcast.com. There's all the episodes there. There's some merchandise. You can buy t-shirts and ties and all sorts of classes and we'll have even more t-shirts at the iai conference in maryland any opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not necessarily any organization that they work for and with that thank you guys for listening and talk to you guys next time bye everybody have a good week